Nate Chen. You can see him at greattobenate.com. He is a UX designer and a, an instructor and a teacher. And that's how I first met Nate. He was in a mentor session with me and it was really inspiring to me. So I'm so happy to have him on Singular XQ, the podcast where we talk about all things experience and transformation. So Nate, welcome. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here, Jennifer, of course. <laughs> so we're going to start with something really, really, really near and dear to my heart and something that I think Nate has a lot of interesting things to talk about, which is trauma-informed design. In our product services and innovation lab, we've been talking about trauma-informed design. And the reason that this has become more interesting to us is that we are thinking of ourselves as collectively traumatized. We are a global company and everybody's going through the same traumatic experience. Some parts of the world are being more traumatized than others because inequity is everywhere and all the time. So we are experiencing amongst our colleagues, those who are impacted more deeply, but nevertheless, all of us have been deeply, one might say, traumatized by the pandemic. So Nate, what, what can you tell us about designing with trauma in mind? Finally, we are having empathy for problems that have been with us for the last four decades, they just are accelerated. So they're becoming more obvious for us who have been sort of cushioned from it. Finally, we're coming to realization about these systems that we've been ignorant. We had a blind spot, let's be honest, you know? And so we lived in our little bubble and now it was popped recently. So now we're coming to terms with having a deeper empathy for fellow man. And yeah, I think it's the, you know, it's a double-edged sword, right? We've all lost some loved ones. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we could say is to blame, but I think that the other side of the sword is finally, we're aware of a, and having a deeper empathy for the problems and issues you know, our fellow men have. And third world countries, they're, you know, experiencing and dealing with it much different than what we are in, you know, the first world countries. So I think it's an interesting time to be a designer. We are at this, you know, renaissance, if you will, of design and starting to question our designs. Whereas before it was like, I am a designer at the top of our ivory tower and I ordain this or that, and maybe I'm really good at graphic design or maybe I'm really good at fashion design. And if you don't like it, it's because whatever. You're just, you don't, you're get, not, it. You you don't, don't get, get it. You just don't understand me, I'm the designer. And what really I think was happening is we were doing art therapy for ourselves and just kind of capturing a clip of it. Just like we did with taking advantage of Kurt Cobain's depression at a young age as a media company, MTV, you know, kind of just put him on stage and showcased it. And it was music therapy for him. But little did we know kind of underneath it, what kind of trauma was really going on in Seattle, where he was from, which has a high suicide rate. Mm. So yeah, now we have a deeper empathy for our fellow men. And, and I think that's bringing this new term, which actually I maybe have heard in passing, like designing for trauma or 
trauma-centered design or I forget what you you called it, Jennifer. Trauma-informed design. Trauma-informed design, yeah. And for me, it started, I, I didn't learn it pre-pandemic. I learned about it because some people in my in my life are are on the autism spectrum and they they suffer from anxiety and they suffer from very strong startle reflexes. And I I as a designer, I was thinking about designing interfaces for them that don't disturb them because we mentioned a little bit about black hat and white hat design. You know, we we sometimes use people's anxiety to sell things quicker, right? We create mm. a talk, a, a, a clicking talk. That sounds great. A I like the first clock. one. <laughs> a ticking clock to put pressure on people to add the extra special bonus VIP parking to the already expensive parking. Yeah, the ticking. sense of urgency. Yes, and we harness people's sense of anxiety and their FOMO, fear of missing out in order to sell them things quicker. But what we found actually with those interfaces is that that makes it less likely for the person to return to the website. So while Ooh. you may have gotten the sale, they will associate that website with a feeling of anxiety that they do not like. So it never pays to traumatize your customers, right? It's like but, a short-term vanity metric. Yeah, it's feel good. We did it. We gave them a sense of urgency and we took advantage selling ice to Eskimo. A conversion, a conversion. Yes. Okay. But then, you know, your numbers are dropping off and your return visitors are not, your numbers are not, are not doing well. What, what, what did we do? But when I learned about that, I started thinking about the people in my life that I know are very, you know, have a little bit of an obsessive compulsive disorder or have a strong startle reflex, anxiety. How do we design in a more gentle way so that we don't, because I believe when we design for inclusion, we're designing, we're making designs that are better for everyone, right? So that's where I came into this idea of trauma-informed design, which is now, now come to the fore with the pandemic, as we've been talking about at the Product mm -hmm. Services and Innovation Lab. And I was wondering, I know that you have a project called Humdrum right now. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I guess this is like a, my little plug, but over my life, I've been called and introduced by family members to other people in their public circles as autistic myself. So I can kind of empathize with at least the kind of public shaming. Like they would say, here's our son. He's an artist, but we call him autistic, you know? And I'm like, okay, I get the pun, but I didn't really say anything then. For me, I've had my own nervous, restless leg syndrome. And my cousin also has it. And he has clinically diagnosed ADHD and took Adderall at an early age. And I didn't because I grew up impoverished. So we didn't have a doctor. We didn't have a family doctor, but my cousin, his dad was a lawyer. And so they had really, you know, an affluent life. But when I witnessed how they would treat him, you know, sort of like, Hey, we'll just medicate it away instead of spending time with, again, as we ascend in power and wealth, our empathy wanes. And so I saw that they were hiring somebody else to step in to do the empathy for them, like a nanny. And so Seeing my cousin go through this, I knew I didn't want to take Adderall or any of that stuff. Also asked my father, and he's like, you know what? I think I got it, but I'm not telling anybody. I was like, all right, well, give me some tips, you know? And he always had this like little book or folded up sheet, and he would do a checklist. He would use that as self-medication. And he's an engineer, whereas I'm a designer. And growing up, I always knew I wanted to be a designer because I questioned where the hell is everything coming from? I've always been a designer. and music therapy. 
one day became my little vibe. What happened was more affluent people in my family got guitars and were paid guitar lessons. But here I am bored and alone. And in that boredom was a fertile ground to be creative. I would be creative in my own ways. And now I was fortunate enough to have a foster stepfather who worked at Radio Shack and he would bring home broken computers. And we did have like a computer program that taught me music and things. But it was really kind of like boring and, you know, Mother Goose fairy tale and then like Beethoven Ode to Joy kind of stuff. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, da, 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 you know, and I'm like, all right, going through the levels, not really engaging for me, but I learned some kind of fundamentals, I'm sure. And that was piano. But what really hit was when my mother's mom, who was like a quarter Cherokee, that when she died, friends of my uncle, Jerry, who was really close in age to me, like he's only four years older, got him a guitar, a yellow guitar. And in his trailer, because you know I mean, we're all white trash, so we were growing up in trailers. I saw that guitar and I, I began to play it because everybody's mourning. And it has this whole like, very of the times grunge Pearl Jam feeling. And he was a Pearl Jam fan and I got sucked into this guitar, but I didn't have one. I couldn't afford one. So when I went home, I was without guitar. Well, on my 13th or 14th birthday, I asked for a guitar from my biological father. And instead of getting a guitar, he got a Boy Scout project. Some Boy Scout had made and built and sold at a garage sale. Now it was barely a guitar, plywood, humbuckers were screwed in, strings were there, but this thing would go in and out of tune. But one night I was playing just two notes at a time, like an arpeggio. And then I started singing. And when I began singing and harmonizing and created a melody, a tear ran down my cheek. And at that moment, I knew this was special. The next morning we were gonna have this big cross country race. And it was in Chicago. But we were in Springfield area. So it was going to be a long trip the next day. My mom and I got in a tit for tat about something, something. And she called the cops on me because I, I ran out the door. Or I slammed the door. Or something. And I think she was having an emotional reaction. And surely I was. But we had this dispute. The cops came and they took me. And they said, where do you need to go? You know, where can you go? I was like, I have a race tomorrow. And so they took me to the team captain's house. And now my face is just covered in crying in tears because I'm so embarrassed. This is the most humiliating thing that could ever happen to you. Your mom called the cops on you. But they put me in a room inside this house to give me space to let me cry it out and emotional. And, and underneath the bed, lo and behold, was a dreadnought acoustic guitar. And I saw the neck sticking out and I pulled it out and I began to play. And it began to soothe my trauma. Now, I, did, I wasn't aware of it. I didn't know what it was doing. I probably didn't run a good race the next day or any of that, but I started a band. This is like my first small business entrepreneur story, right? Like it was viable. We actually got people to pay us and, and it was just enough money to afford Wendy's and gas and a Mazda MPV that could barely fit the drum set. And we traveled from Iowa and Illinois, Indiana, just hitting up the Midwest spots and music therapy it was sort of part of my upbringing. Okay. So it's been with me longer than some of the people in my life today. Right. Well, college and anxiety pressures came into play and the band broke up. We all went our separate ways, but I knew I wanted to be a designer. 
And so I, I went to school, but I ended up buskering on the street playing music and failed out my first year. Then what? Well, I worked at a restaurant from 3 a.m. in the morning until 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So I had this like extra time at the end in a little town called Franklin, Indiana, which is funny because I grew up in Franklin, Illinois. During the afternoons, I would go to a music store down the street from the restaurant, pick up like VHS tapes on jazz guitar, blues guitar, whatever, and, and play guitar. I remember playing for people in like these little intimate sessions on the balcony of a shared apartment with my Adderall cousin. And they were like, wow, you're so professional. How do you do that? And I'm like, really? You think that's professional? You know, but I had played in a band forever, but it was, again, it was just my music therapy. Then one day I was picked up from the laundromat by my girlfriend at the time, and she had been smoking marijuana in the car. And this is illegal in Indiana. And so I took the blame when the cops pulled us over for driving without headlights, even though she was the driver. And that was idiotic. But I went to jail. I spent the night in jail. She bailed me out the next morning. And during this time, I got sort of brought back to reality. It was like, I called my uncle who was a lawyer, right? And I said, hey, yep, finally hit rock bottom. So as soon as you could get me out of here, that'd be great. And of course, he was way too slow because he's going through some kind of bureaucratic political networking to get me out. Whereas my, my girlfriend's like, all right, everybody, get your money down. He took a, a hit for me. So we got to get him out now. You know, so she got me out. I was like, so refreshed to see her face, believe you me. But this was a turning point because my biological father kind of stepped in and took responsibility and brought me back home. And he's like, look, this is going to be like boot camp meets the Amish. I was like, cool. Or is that cool? So instead of living with them, they actually put me in my granny great's house. And in that house, I began to play guitar again. And they put me in a factory job. But then one day I said, I was on the road to a different factory. And the night before I had watched Alexander the Greats, where it says in the opening credits, fortune favors the bold. It's like ringing in my head as I'm driving to this next factory, just another contract factory worker, you know. And I passed my grandfather, who was the representative of Indiana. I've passed his bridge that they commemorated him with after he died of a brain tumor. And I was like, oh, yeah, Gramps. You know, it gives you like a little bit of a boost, you know, like, oh, yeah. And then I passed a sign that said Vincent's University, which my grandmother, his wife, worked at at that time. And so crossed my mind. I was like, fortune favors the bull. Veered off and took the exit. Called in sick for the first time in my life. And I went and I filled out the FAFSA. I got all this loans that I couldn't pay back and, and racked up 12 grand in dormitory fees and stuff. And that's when I got back into design. I went and I, I studied design at Vincent's University. I worked as a waiter, but I took on so many part-time jobs, one of which was a like an associate, but I did some graphic design work for Blackboard for the Center of Teaching and Learning part-time for Debbie, Deborah Stanzik. And I still remember, I was so scared making my first graphic design that these, this classroom was going to see. And they're like, design a, a stoplight because we need it to be red when they need to stop, yellow and slow down and green. And I was like, I can't believe they're treating children or students like vehicles. This is hilarious. But okay. And I did it. And after graduating, I threw a line in the sand. I was like, I will never work in a restaurant again. I'm a designer from this day on. 
and I moved back to my old stomping grounds where I buskered on the street in Carbondale, Illinois during that time where I was skipping school and I, I attended the SIUC again. And this time I took it seriously. I was like, I'm a designer. And in fact, I went to every design place in this town that I could to get hired. And I'll tell you, persistence is what paid off. Just keep going back. I was like, no, let me talk to the owner, the owner, the owner, the owner. Right? And finally got to talk with the owner. And he's like, your portfolio is total shit. But one of those things is kind of like what we do. So, okay, you get a job. And that's the beginning of my career is I was thankful enough to get a design job and also go to design school at the same time. And I took it more seriously. Well, I still had the music therapy, you know, I still had it in me and I would play music at night in this apartment and I, it just kept propagating and propagating. Well, my design career took off after I moved to from Carbondale, Illinois to San Diego, California. This is around 2011 because I spent 2010 in Shanghai. So 2011-ish is where things changed. And we moved to San Diego for the weather. Here in California, we're closer to the mecca of UX design, San Francisco, you know, where like Don Norman invented the word in 1988, working as a contractor at Apple. So the economy changed, you know, in the Midwest, it's all like industrial design, if you can, or marketing design for healthcare. Here, it's completely different. People were doing like digital products. And I was in demand and I was like, what is this? So you want me to do a website? All right, I'll do it. And I was lucky enough to have learned code along the way. But, you know, 10 years or I've been doing design for 15 years now, but, you know, 10 years later, I find myself, you know, sort of at the ascending to the altar of UX design evangelist. I've been a UX engineer. I've been a UX researcher. I've been a UX designer. I've been all these different UX this or that. And during this transformation, right, I never let go of music. And so I'm teaching all you mentees and students at these universities or online boot camps. And, you know, you guys are bringing up projects to me. And I'm like, ah. I've never really taken my own advice and started my own thing. I was like, well, what if I did? What would it be? And I, I used the same mentoring that I give to others and I used it on myself. And I said, humdrum, because every evening when I'm trying to brush my toddler's teeth for two minutes, I get impatient. My restless leg syndrome comes back to haunt me. But instead of seeing it as a problem, I use it as a tempo, metronome for music. I'm humming to my own beat. And when sharing this with one of my mentees, Angelica Hachia, she, is a, she works at Topple now, T-O-P-L. She was a, a prodigy product manager now with a UX design certification, you know, and she was interviewing me sort of like a cognitive interview. And she was like, you know, Nate, that sounds like you've got an anxiety disorder. And I was like, no, kidding. 
you're, you're okay. This whole time, I've, I've normalized my anxiety. I flourish in it. I run races with it. I create music with it. I'm using my anxiety as a tool. And that's part of the double-edged sword of anxiety is like in your case, you mentioned it could be taken advantage of as a dark pattern in marketing to fulfill some capitalistic endeavor like for profit and, and vanity metrics. But on the other hand, it can get us out of the way of something that could kill us and it could keep us motivated. All right. So I was like, oh my goodness, there's epiphany here. And I asked, well, what if I combined my music passion and I used it to solve this problem, but instead of just being selfish and doing my own music therapy in my cubicle, if you will, and just leaving it at that, what if I empowered others to do it too? And so I called it humdrum, like in those areas of boredom, you're humdrum but that's the fertile ground of creativity. But it was taken by some Midwest company that's doing good things with like a nonprofit kind of charity thing to get people out of depression. And, and you know, hats off to them. So I added a second hum, first of all, for a domain name, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how many of y'all bought a domain name? But it, one day I was hanging lights in my backyard And I heard next to my ear and I was startled. Like what? I'm just trying to hang lights in a palm tree. They live in San Diego. And it was a hummingbird protecting its nest. Hummingbird has two M's and it creates a hum sound. So all this comes together to create this brand. And I start to pull in team of high, you know, like, really hardworking personality A types from my classes at UCSD or Springboard where I'm a mentor. And we create different screens and a, a prototype of the experience. And the best part is everybody that I recruited had a music background in composition or synthesizers, or they were had just published their own album. So everybody has this music background and we all came together to make humdrum and so right now you know we're just starting to number one get people signed up for beta so you can go to humdrum.com and sign up but number two we're recruiting from that pool of people to test the prototype for both a visual standpoint but also the functional standpoint of audio and this is the fun part we actually record your audio and we make it amazing So by taking trauma of anxiety, restless leg syndrome, general anxiety disorder, which is like the number two biggest mental health issue, second Mm -hmm. to depression in the world, by taking that, which had a taboo about it, like a mental disorder once before and making it amazing, just like Yankees took a derogatory term and made it their slogan of the team. We're taking this anxiety and we're making it the other edge of the sword so it can actually work for us now we're not stopping there because your hums whistles or as one team member brought up farts because we will also accept those as noises you know just like you make these sounds and capture these white noises 
Like right now, if we're all silent for a minute, you probably hear something in the background of your car as you're listening to this podcast or at your home, if you have others that live with you, roommates, etc. For me right now, if I'm quiet for five seconds, I can hear the neighbor's hired hand. We, what is it? Leaf blowing. Your yard. And I think it happens every week at this time, but that leaf blower has a frequency, a key frequency. And so what I found in my own little self-discovery is that I hum to different sounds as a form of therapy because I'm anxious. So if I'm on the lawnmower and I'm bored and the lawnmower is loud, I hum and sing in its key frequency. When I run those five-minute miles in cross-country, I hum to the beat of my breathing. This is my therapy. So I'm empowering people with humdrum to do that for themselves. And we take that and then the, the wabi-sabi, kintsugi, Japanese philosophy, we're taking what's ugly and making it beautiful. We're taking imperfections and we're gluing it together with gold and publishing those on TikTok and Spotify so you can earn passive income from your hums, kicks, and whistles while you sleep. This is really exciting. And it's also, it's also like the, the complete photographic negative of what we described with the black hat marketing techniques of using people's anxiety to sell them things where, you know, they, what they get back is they're, you know, a hundred dollars poorer. Now they're getting back. You're putting money back into their pockets. I just love that. That is a fantastic idea. You know, I know someone who hummed and also this person also does suffer from general anxiety disorder. And I, I was around this person when they were very small. And now that we're adults, I, I said, you hummed all the time. It was constant. And he told me the funniest story. He said, and now I'm connecting it to his anxiety, which is just such an amazing aha I had, because I also know separate from this, that he has an anxiety disorder that is treated clinically and medically. He said, you know, I did not know. And I, I knew this person when they were an infant on. And he said, I did not know that I did that until I went to kindergarten. And a teacher turned to me and said, would you stop? And he said, that was the first time I realized I was doing it out loud. To him, it was in his head. And he didn't, he didn't know. But for me, it was always like he was humming things he heard on TV, theme songs. Then he was humming the video games that he liked like Mario Brothers, because, you know, he's, I told you the same age as you, right? So like, you know, he's humming Nintendo Brothers and Mario Brothers theme song. And then when I was, I was really into Tetris, he would hum the Tetris theme song. And he said, I just didn't know that I was doing it out loud. And that was the point that he thinks he became a musician because he is also a musician. So that's very interesting. I wonder if we did a poll of musicians, how many of them would be suffering from anxiety disorders and we can also take that number and, and add a little bit to it because as you experience, a lot of people don't know that they have them because people, for example, I don't have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, but I am angry in crowds. And I realized recently that it's actually anxiety because somebody mm -hmm. in my family was diagnosed with agoraphobia. And I said, it's, and I, I just, I just don't like people in my space. Mm. <laughs> I don't like to go to large concerts. If I go to a concert, I go to a small venue, George Winston concert where everybody's. My first time in Shanghai was like that in the subways. 
Oh, I imagine. I am so protective of my only child at the time. All of a sudden I was like a rooster protecting its chicks. I was like, <laughs> back away from the stroller. There's too many people. And I grew up in New York City. And I also grew up in very, very compressed environments in Queens where I, I lived in a home with another family where the teenagers were sleeping on the landing of this like kind of pseudo brownstone. And so, you know, just it, it, I realized that I developed this sense of protection of my personal space. Right. Mm. And so now being in a shopping mall is like my worst nightmare. Right. I hate it. Mm. It's, I could do it and I do it, but I'm pretty, pretty cranky while I'm there. So that's so interesting. Okay. So humdrum, that's H-U-M-M drum.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Hope everybody else does too. Good. Well, that is our number one cool thing. I love it. Thanks so much. I hope we can do this again. It was fantastic. I'd be honored. Yeah. I am so honored that you decided to be on my first season without a proof of concept from me. And you're in good company so far. Dr. Susan Weinshank was here, you know, the inventor of behavioral design. And then also we have some other big heavy hitters coming up. So we're really excited. And I am going to be looking out for Humdrum, man. I have so many people I know that I could give that app to. So I, I can't wait to see what comes of it. So let's stay in touch. Will do. Thanks, Jennifer, again. Have a good day. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.